All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to join you. This is a new chapter in our church where we've met for the first time now, for the first time over a year. And so for those of you at home, uh, we miss you, and we hope in the future gatherings that we have that we can have more of you join us as we meet together. Uh, just know you, you guys at home can't see, but it feels like first century Jerusalem. We're all sitting on a slab of stone, and it's outdoors, and you can hear noise, nature outside. This is probably closer to the type of setting that when Jesus it looks probably a little bit more like this cut without the microphones or so forth. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for those of you who are here, very excited to be with all of you. I look forward to talking to as many as you as possible after service ends and having small chat, long chat, just catching up with all of you. Uh, the kids are over there, and I can hear them sometimes just kind of having uh, screaming and singing and so forth, looking forward to see how all the kids have grown up at our church. I really look forward to taking the Lord's Supper with all of you. It's been over a year since we've done it, and uh, yeah, it's something that I feel is to our detriment when we can't do that. And so uh, looking forward to that, which is going to take place right after the message. Uh, but I'm especially looking forward to celebrating what we've been building up as a church this whole past week, which is uh, in Holy Week, it all leads to this day of Sunday called Easter. Easter is always special, but I think for a lot of us here, we can say it after the past year that we experienced, it's probably a little bit more special, not only because we're here together, but Easter, it's actually meant to be primarily a message of hope for God's people. And so therefore, as we look at the story of Easter, that's the encouragement and my prayer that for all of us who might have been a bit weary and tired for so long, may we walk away hopefully with the greater sense of hope that we have in Christ. And so if you have your Bibles or if you have the programs that you already have opened, there is a passage that we're going to be looking at from the Gospel of Mark. It's Mark chapter 16, the last chapter of his Gospel. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 8 of Mark chapter 16. So Mark chapter 16, verse 1, we'll read down all the way to verse 8. You can read along with me as I read out loud, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in the white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. Do you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. For they were a movie before where the entire movie is pretty good, but what makes the movie memorable is actually the way it ends. I actually think the ending of a movie or a book either makes the movie or book or it breaks it. And I remember experiencing the first time watching a movie where the ending just enhanced everything when I first saw back in 1999 uh, the movie The Sixth Sense. I'm really saddened that probably half of you don't know what that movie, or never seen that movie, rather. Uh, but I bet you most of you have probably heard of it. And the reason why is because of the twist at the end of the movie. And it, the twist at the time, which I won't spoil because, again, this is strange. Probably a lot of us haven't seen it. It was so good. It was so unexpected that it made the movie not just a good movie, but memorable. 
where all of us kind of know and heard of that movie. And I dare to argue if that movie did not have the twist ending that it had, it would still have been a good movie, but nobody would have remembered it after 20 years. not be talking about it and referring to it at all because it would just have gone down as one of those nice, decent movies out there. But the ending made the movie. I would argue in a similar way, the Gospels in the Bible, as memorable or as good as we think the works are, it would not have survived for 2,000 years if it wasn't for the chapter that we just read. The Gospel of Mark, for example, it is 16 chapters. The first 15 chapters are chapters that I'm sure all of us are somewhat familiar with. Jesus' teachings, his examples, his life, his miracles. But if chapter 16, the, verse, the chapter that we just read, if that was not included in the Gospel of Mark, nobody would have, have heard of the Gospel of Mark except historians. It would have been a footnote in history. And the reason why is because the Gospels, including Mark, it is memorable after 2,000 years due to this unexpected twist at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Because if the Gospels were only about Jesus living and dying, nobody would really pay attention. And what made the story so memorable is the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead, but it claims that he has risen. And this is why, after 2,000 years, churches all around the world throughout history, they gather together on this day to remember this final chapter of Jesus' life that we call Easter. As one theologian named John Stott says, he quotes, Christianity is, in its essence, a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at the heart of Christianity, and if you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. Quite the claim, meaning if, this did not, if Jesus never rose, then everything else we learn from Jesus, there's kind of no point, because everything hangs on this ending. Now, why does John Stott say that? Why am I saying that Easter, it's so essential and so important that it kind of brings the anchor to everything Jesus has done? What is the Easter story really about? And why should it matter to us? Today, what I want to do is I want to, on, as we gather together and as we're excited to see one another, I want to remind especially God's people why we are meeting on this Easter day and why this is something that's so core to our faith. And we're going to answer those questions that I asked earlier through Mark's account of the story by seeing it in three ways. First, we're going to look at the significance of Easter, why Easter is so important. Second, we're going to look at the message of Easter. What is Easter actually saying to us? And lastly, the continuation of Easter. How does Easter live on? So the significance, the message, and the continuation. First, the significance of Easter. If you've been trekking with us for the past week, or even if you've just been reading ever the Gospels before, you would, or even if you've never read the Gospels, but you know a basic idea of Jesus' life, a basic outline is Jesus was a poor person who lived in, the, who lived in a poor, impoverished area, and he lived about 33 years old. It's kind of trippy. I'm older than what Jesus was. Jesus was about 33 years old. He was preaching and healing and doing public ministry for about three years, and then... On this past Friday, Good Friday that we celebrated, the Roman officials, they arrested Jesus, they crucified him, and he died on that Friday. And what happened was he was buried for three days, and what we see in Mark 16 is the following Sunday of his death, three women go and visit the tomb of Jesus on Sunday. Look again what it says in verses 1 to 2. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And on the very first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. 
Now, the reason why the women are going to the tomb is very specific. It says they bought spices to anoint him. In other words, back then, whenever a dead body would be there to prevent decomposition, to make sure it doesn't smell, people would come who care about the body, anoint it with perfume so that it doesn't uh, stay rotten. And you do this because, the women did this because they expected to see a corpse. They thought Jesus' body would be there. Now notice, none of them thought as they're walking, hmm, I wonder if Jesus will be alive today. Maybe there won't be a corpse. Maybe he'll be risen. Not a single one of them thought that. Instead, on verse 3, we see what they're concerned about. It said to them that, hmm, they said to one another, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They were just thinking about how we can get to the body. And notice that while the three women are visiting this tomb, notice who is not visiting the tomb. Jesus' 12 disciples. Didn't Jesus tell his disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise in three days, so make sure you watch out for that? You would think, if you've been following Jesus around for three years, and he's constantly telling you, I'm going to rise on the third day, that at least one of those disciples would come and see, hmm, I wonder if this is going to happen. None of them did. Why? Why did disciples not visit Jesus' tomb? Why were these women going to embalm Jesus' dead body? The reason why is because, to them, Jesus was just like any other Messiah. That's what they were thinking at this moment. In the first century, back in Jerusalem, just know Jesus was not the only person saying, I'm the Messiah, and people started following him. There were dozens of people who claimed to be the Messiah, where Israel saw him as the anointed one. God's anointed him from Rome's oppression. Have you ever heard of a man named Simon Bar Kokhba? Have you heard of that man before? Me neither. I never heard of him. But you know what? He was one of the Messiahs where he did exactly what Jesus did. He came saying, I am the Messiah, God's anointed one. He started teaching. People came to him, performed miracles, and people were amazed by him. He had a huge following that gathered around him. And then what happened was the same thing that happened to every other messianic movement. According to the scholar N.T. Wright, who wrote a thick book about the resurrection, what he said is in the first century, there was a bunch of messianic movements, and they always had the same pattern. A guy who claims to be the Messiah, teachings, miracles, people would follow him and have a huge movement. But then the Roman officials, they would interfere, they would arrest the leader, they would kill the leader. And what would happen every single time after the leader died, the movement ended. It was gone. This was not the Messiah that we thought about. It kind of reminds me of when people tell me about cryptos. You know, it's not just Bitcoin out there, right? It's not just Ethereum. There are dozens of Bitcoin cryptos out there. The newest one I heard about is, uh, I remember you heard Dogecoin. Some of you might have heard of that. People told me, get in right now. This is the one. This is the new Bitcoin. Or people told me recently about this NBA thing called Top Shot. This is the one. Invest in it and you're going to make a lot of money. And what happens is all these cryptos, they have a lot of hype. People think this is the one. Eventually it crashes and nobody cares and it's gone forever. That's kind of what it was like back then in the first century. A bunch of messiahs who people invest in, this is the one. But as soon as he dies, as soon as he's murdered, every single one without fail disbanded, the movement ended. But this is where the story of Jesus gets interesting. The story of Jesus follows the exact same pattern of every messianic movement that happened in the first century. He's a messiah, people think he's a messiah, a movement happens, people start following him, 
teachings and miracles. But then suddenly the Romans arrest him. They kill him. The followers all scatter. And most likely what should happen is the movement should have ended. Because that's how every movement ended. This is nothing new. But what was fascinating about this is that it didn't end. Even though they thought it would end. The women thought, this is another Messiah who died like everybody else, so let's honor him. Let's pay our tribute to him and then move on. He was like, in their mind, a Martin Luther King Jr., a good man who did good things that we honor once a year, but that's it. Because that's how all the messiahs are. He was like a Gandhi. His teachings were inspiring. But that's it. Just think about him once in a while. Honor him because he's one of many messiahs. But what made the Jesus movement so unique is that's not what happened. The followers did not just treat him like a Gandhi or MLK. In fact, the movement did not end after he died. But opposite of every other movement, the exact opposite happened. Historically, after a few days of Jesus' death, when everyone scattered, the movement all of a sudden grew from 12 people to 150 people to 3,000 people. While every movement died after the leader died, Christianity endured through ridicule, even though persecution happened, even though plagues happened, even though oppression happened. And within 300 years, this Christian movement led by a dead Messiah spread to the entire Roman Empire, where all of Rome became a Christian nation. And even today, after 2,000 years, for some reason, this movement that should have died, it is still the largest growing religion in the world. Out of all the messianic movements that took place in the first century, what makes the Christian movement so different? It was not Jesus' teachings. As enlightening as those are, as inspiring as his teachings are, that is not what made Christianity take off. It was not Jesus' example. It was not his life. As perfect of a life he lived, as great an example as he lived, that's not what made Christianity unique. It wasn't even Jesus' death on the cross. Plenty of people died on the cross. Logical backing behind it, but that is not what made the movement of Christianity explode. What made the movement explode was in verse 5 to 6, where it says, And looking up, the women saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He was dead, but he has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. I'm pretty sure if you ask anybody today, hey, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian right now? What made you become a Christian? A lot of us would say, I became a Christian because I love Jesus' teachings, or I just grew up in the church, or I love the fact that Jesus loved me, or I love the community. Ask any first century Christian martyr, why are you a Christian? What they would say is, because he has risen. He's different. He opened the door to death. He is God's anointed one. In other words, Jesus has always been worshipped, not because of what he did, or what he did, he is worshipped for who he is. He is the long prophesied Messiah who does not just teach a new way of life. He is the way towards a new way of life. That's what made Jesus different. It's like The Matrix. It's another 90s movie. Have you guys, I'm pretty sure a lot of us haven't seen that movie either. You got to watch it. There's a dude named Neo, played by Keanu Reeves. And everyone thought, is this guy the one who's going to free them from their interesting little enslavery thing? And no one knew if he's the one until he died, and then he rose again, 
And everybody saw him going, he is the one. The long prophesied person who we've been waiting for. And he can say all he wants that he's the one. He could do all the kung fu that he wants to show that he's one. But when he rose from the dead, everybody saw that in the movie saying, this guy is the one we've been waiting for. And those people from the Matrix, they didn't make that up. They stole that line from the Bible, from Christianity. Jesus is the one. He is not just one of many messiahs who are out there claiming to have authority over our lives. But if he really rose from the dead, if he's really someone who conquered death, he is not just one of any messiah. He is the messiah. The resurrection radically changed Jesus' disciples. They went from scattered people to a gathered force. It radically changed the city of Rome. It radically changed all of history. But the question is, has it changed you? Does it change you that Jesus, if he's really alive? If you're visiting our church for the first time or exploring Christianity or just think this is an interesting thing, Christians gather together talking about a resurrection, maybe maybe you're okay with the church, you're okay with the faith, but maybe certain parts of the teachings are kind of weird, you're not really sure if I should be a Christian, parts of the Bible that you might struggle with, whether it be it's talk about money or sexual ethics or so forth. But here's the thing. If Jesus is just another Messiah, you can pick and choose whatever you want to believe in. It's like a Gandhi. Whatever inspires you should inspire you. But if Jesus is really raised from the dead, if he's really alive and resurrected, if he, in other words, is God's anointed one, the Messiah, then you have to deal with everything it says in the Bible. Everything that he says counts because he is the one who actually conquered death. It's, it's like somebody telling me, hey, how, this is how you get to Harvard. This is how you get to Harvard. Oh, okay, I hear their advice, but one person said, I went to Harvard, and this is what you should do. You just pay attention to that a little bit more. That's almost the claim of what Jesus and his followers are saying. He has risen from the dead. He is alive. And if you are a Christian right here, right now, Easter is actually a big challenge to us where it makes us ask, are you approaching Jesus like any other Messiah? Is he someone like for you, the three women in the tomb, who you honor Jesus once a year? You respect Jesus' teachings, but he doesn't really change your life. Even if you didn't become a Christian tomorrow, your life would look the same. What Easter challenges us to say, but if Jesus has risen, he can't function that way in your life. He is the one. And he calls us to live as if he is the one in your life. That is the significance of Easter. He is not just one of any Messiah. He is the Messiah. Now, the second part, though, is the message of Easter. What is Easter actually telling us? What, does, what is actually the story of Easter for us? Well, as we keep reading... The angels, what's interesting is when the women come, they don't just say, hey, Jesus is alive. They don't just tell him that. But the angels commission the women to do something. Look what it says in verse 7, what the angels do. In verse 7, it says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as I told you. Now, notice something very subtle here. Notice the angels do not tell the women, Jesus is not here. He's alive in heaven. He's, he's in a better place. So be at ease. That's not what the angels say. The angels tell the women Jesus is here in the city of Galilee. It's like saying, hey, he's over there in Buena Park. You could see him. In other words, Jesus is not just spiritually alive, but Jesus, he has physically risen from the dead. You can go see him. Now, what's interesting is why do the angels tell them he's in Galilee? At the moment where they're at in the tomb, Jesus was buried in Jerusalem. And, they, and they, the angel said, go to Galilee, though, because Jesus is going to meet you there. You know, Galilee is about 120 miles away. 
And these guys don't have cars or Ubers. They have to walk all the way there. It's a four-day journey. And they're saying, hey, Jesus, he rose in Jerusalem, and he decided just go all the way four days somewhere else. Why? The reason why is in the Gospel of Mark, the city of Galilee, it is a place of revelation. It is the place where Jesus reveals very important things to his disciples. Galilee is the place where Jesus told them that, hey, follow me. He made them first disciples. Galilee is the city where he told them, I am the Christ. And Galilee is the place where the transfiguration happened, where Moses and Elijah showed up and they're up in the mountains. Galilee is the special place of significance for Jesus to make big moments with his disciples. And what happened is Jesus wants to meet them one more time in Galilee to reveal a final lesson about himself, that he is alive, physically alive, and resurrected. Oftentimes, when we think about Easter and heaven and the afterlife, we think of the movie Soul, where you just kind of go up into stairways of heavens, right? The New Testament, though, it speaks completely against that. The New Testament constantly emphasizes Jesus is physically alive. He ate with the disciples in other Gospels. He walked with them. He told them to touch him. And the reason why is because it's trying to show Jesus' body is not just dead and decaying while Jesus' spirit is floating, but his body is filled with new life and flesh and blood. And this is so what the Christian faith tells us is that whatever decaying or broken can be made new. Whatever is broken in our lives can be restored. And this is radically good news. Imagine, this is kind of a silly example, but imagine you bought a dog. And some of you during COVID, all of you, a lot of you have dogs now. Imagine you just bought your dog, and imagine it's a good dog. I know some of you don't like dogs. Imagine you bought a dog, it's a very good dog, and you love this dog. What happens is one day, owning this dog, your dog, all of a sudden, when you go to the backyard, he's gone. He's missing. And imagine you are searching for this dog for months and months and months, and finally, it's just, you realize it's lost, most likely dead, maybe eaten, and you're just going to grieve. You're just going to be like, you know, you lost a, a, good, a good pet. Now imagine after a few months of you grieving and feeling the loss, all of a sudden someone goes, hey, you know, you know how you should get over it? You should buy a new dog. Get a new dog. And it makes you feel better. And maybe after mulling about it, you buy a new dog, and that new dog, you may grow to love it. It may have a little bit more companionship in your life, but you would still feel a sense of loss of the old dog. You would, even though this new dog is great, the old dog and the wounds and the loss that you experienced there, it's still kind of, the shadow's still over you in that experience. I think this is how a lot of people view the Christian view of heaven. A lot of people, when you think about heaven, even though you suffered a lot in life, you experienced a lot of loss of people, of relationships, what Christians, what people think is, but one day, you're going to go to heaven, which is a radically new place, and it's going to be a way better place than everything you experience. So that's kind of the consolation that you have. And this is how people view heaven. You've lost, but don't worry. A better place is there. A new dog is coming. It's okay that you lost your old dog. But if Jesus has physically resurrected, and if his promise is that not only him, but all those in him will physically rise, Realize the message of Easter is far different than what that perception is. Easter does not say at the end people will experience something new when they go up to heaven. But Easter tells us that at the end, people will experience something renewed when heaven comes down to us.
let's go back to that dog scenario. What Easter is more like is imagine the same dog scenario. You bought a dog, you raised it, it went missing, won't, most likely won't return. You're grieving after months because you realize you can't find it, and you just lost your dog. But instead of getting a new dog, imagine you get a phone call where someone says, hey, your, do your dog's been missing for a year, right? Yeah? I found him. He's here. And not only did I find him, he's healthy, he's good, he's happy. And when you get that dog back and you reunite with him, it will not only heal you of whatever grief or loss you felt from losing it, but won't there be a newfound love for this dog? A newfound, a deeper experience for the affections you have for what was missing, for what was lost. That is a far better picture of what Easter is saying happens to us for those in the resurrection. Do you realize the resurrection, if it's not just us floating into heaven, but it is the physical resurrection of things that were once dead but now alive, what that means is that all those who place their trust in Christ, all not, not just a good new thing, but all the broken things that you experience will be renewed. You don't just get your decaying, broken body back. You get a renewed body where, that you always wanted but never had. You don't just get your lost marriage back. You experience a new type of marriage that you always wanted but never had. You don't just get something that just passed through suffering and loss and endurance, and that's something in the past that just stays there, but you experience a type of healing from all the suffering and loss that you experience. That's what Easter says. That's the message of Easter, hope. Not that things just become new, things become renewed. And probably the most powerful thing about this passage that I see here is not just the message of the resurrection, but who this message is meant for. Do you notice who the angels are talking to, saying, hey, this is what's going to happen, deliver this? Who are they talking to? To us, that's no big deal. But in the first century, the question would be, why are these angels talking to these three women with this important news of the resurrection? Back then, women were of lower status. They were not people who even had a testimony that could be valid in court. They were somebody who people did not believe in. It's almost like back then, they're the back then version of TMZ. If you want to get news out, go to TMZ. You might question, what? Is that legit? That's how it was back then. These outsiders who you would never think would be included into something as important as a resurrection, for some reason, God went to them and had them deliver this message. And not only that, not only did they approach the women, but notice who the angels tell the women to go to. Go to the disciples and Peter. Why does he single out Peter? Why does he say, hey, not just the disciples, but make sure you go to Peter too? And the reason why is because Peter, he was an insider who messed up. He just failed where he denied Jesus three times. And the angel said, make sure you go to him and tell him, about this resurrection news. Why do this? Why is the message of Easter given specifically to people, people like Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Peter? The reason why is because Peter, he is the ultimate insider who failed over and over and over again. And what God wants him to know is this message of Easter is for someone like you. And for the three women who are on the outside, who you would never imagine them being on the inside of anything at this time, what God is telling them is the message of Easter is for you. And for those of you, if you have been on the inside of the church for so long, and yet you find yourself, you fail over and over and over again, the message of Easter is meant to be given to you. And those of you who have been on the outside, never stepped into a church, feel weird at a church, feel weird even thinking yourself to be a Christian, 
the message of Easter is meant specifically for you. Because the Easter message is a message of grace, not based on what you do, but based solely upon what Jesus has done for you. The message of Easter is a powerful message of healing, of redemption, and it's meant for those specifically who need it most. And that leads to the last point, which is continuation of Easter. Probably the most uh, puzzling thing about this passage, if you pay attention to it, is the way this passage concludes. After the angels tell uh, the women, Jesus rose, go tell the disciples, you would think the women would go, let's go, Jesus is alive, and they went. Look what it says in verse 8. Look how it ends. And they went out, they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's how the story ends. These women are scared, they don't tell anybody, and Mark says, end of the movie. Roll credits. What in the world? Some of you might have Bibles that shows a longer ending. Uh, most scholars will agree, and I agree with them, that probably wasn't part of the original ending of Mark. They're just trying to cover up for Mark's weird ending. It's a weird ending. The movie ends, the book ends with scared people not saying anything. Why does he do this? But I actually think he does this on purpose. This is very intentional. The women don't say anything about the resurrection. It is silent. The message is closed. And Mark, what he's trying to say is who's going to say something? Who's going to spread this message? In other words, the question is not what will the women do next, but the question is now that we know the resurrection story, what will you do next? What are you going to do? And this is where we, as God's church, we are meant to be entrusted with the story of Easter and spread to the news to a broken world. How do we do this? How do we spread the news of Easter? Of course, one way is proclamation, evangelism, share Jesus has risen, hashtag Easter, put it on your social media, proclaim the news of Easter, the resurrection is real. That's one way and one very needed way. But I'd also say during COVID, during this difficult time, I think we share the Easter story, not just by verbally sharing it, but believing it and living it out in our lives. And I think this is especially seen by the difficult year on how we endure it, how our sufferings don't simply crush us, knowing that there is a resurrection and one day all things would be made renewed. I think for a lot of us here and those of you who might be streaming in, we need to remember this because a lot of us, this has been a really challenging year. You've experienced loss, the loss of loved ones. Life plans have been delayed. Your confidence might have shrunk because of a lost job. Relationships have been kind of faded. Maybe your hope has been hindered. But what we do as Christians is we continue the story of Easter when these losses do not crush us, but they are colored by the resurrection. I went, when I, back in college, I said the story before, so forgive me, but those of you who don't know, I was an English major and I grew to love Shakespeare. Uh, I did not like Shakespeare. I'm like, Shakespeare's a genius. I love his plays. And I was really into Shakespeare back in college. And Shakespeare, he writes always one of two types of plays. There's always tragedies, and there's always comedies. You know you're reading a Shakespearean tragedy like Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet because every Shakespearean tragedy funeral. That's why no matter in Romeo and Juliet, no matter how happy they are and how much in love they are in the play, because they both die. The play ends in a funeral. No matter how much Hamlet, he's getting his revenge, and you're thinking, yes, this is a revenge play, it's not a happy revenge because at the end, he dies. It ends in a funeral. So it's difficult to enjoy these moments, to have fun with it, because every time, it's a funeral in Shakespeare's tragedies. 
And in a similar way, if our lives end with the funeral, if everything we do is going to lead where everyone's going to die one day and we're all going to the grave, your life is a tragedy, and even the happiest times you experience, it will be colored with a tinge of sadness. And that's why it's harder to be happy when you get older. You just keep thinking, this is going to be lost one day. My kids are getting older. My parents are getting older. It all feels tragic. But Shakespeare, remember, he also writes comedies. And what you're seeing about comedies, like Much Ado About Nothing, Winter's Tale. I know I sound like a nerd, but bear with me, because Shakespeare, I love him. You know you're reading a Shakespearean comedy because they don't end with the funeral. Every single one ends the same way, a wedding. Every Shakespearean comedy. That's why when Leonardo and Harrow, when they break up in Much Ado About Nothing, you don't worry that they broke up or that one of them died because the ending has a wedding where they're both alive. Or in Winter's Tale, when you realize that Hermione dies and you go, oh, is she, she going to be okay? What's going to happen to her loved ones? At the end, she comes back and there's a wedding. She's alive. In other words, you can endure those dark moments in the Shakespearean plays because you know how the play is going to end. It always ends with a wedding. And if our lives also ends with a wedding, then even the saddest times can be tinged with happiness. And this is why Christians, we are known as people who are always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Because the reality of the resurrection is what colors the way we experience our tragedies. This is the difference the resurrection makes, resurrection makes for us. Life is not a tragedy because it ends with a funeral, but the resurrection is true. It's more like a comedy because Jesus has risen, and one day he awaits for us a great wedding day to supper of the Lamb, where he will celebrate together with us. And so before we participate together in the Lord's Supper, can I exhort us on this Easter day? Easter tells us Jesus, he's not just one of many messiahs. He is the Messiah. Is he that Messiah in your life? Easter tells us he did not just die for the strong and the powerful, but he dies to spend a resurrected life with those who are weak and lowly, people who fail over and over again. And Easter tells us that we can spread it, not just by our proclamation, but how we believe in it, how it shapes the way we suffer, how it shapes the way we live. And so can I pray for us on our behalf? Let's pray a closing prayer, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's all pray.